This podcast is brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thanks for listening. Here's our show. What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Platka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell is going on in this country? What the hell is going on in this country is we are having a miasma of anti-Semitism. Um, it is in the wake of this Hamas attack on Israel. It is absolutely shocking what we are witnessing on college campuses across this country, in cities, in, in Times Square, in Sydney. It's, it was happening abroad as well. It is, it's like we've lifted a rock and all these just vermin and worms and bugs are like scurrying everywhere. We didn't realize they were there. Um, we didn't realize how many of them were, that we didn't realize how acceptable it seemed to be. You know, I remember not too long ago when they had the anti-Semitic, the far-right, alt-right anti-Semitic protests in Charlottesville and the universal condemnation of this far-right movement and Trump's uh, you know, association with it and trying to wrap it around Donald Trump's uh, neck. And, and so therefore, everybody was against it, right? Because these were right-wing anti-Semites and the, there was anti-Semitism infecting the Republican Party. And of course, there were no members of Congress there. There were no conservative academics. These were a bunch of alt-right idiots who are marching. There are Charlottesvilles happening every single day in America right now, multiple ones. They're happening not in some town square with a bunch of, you know, people with torches in, in Charlottesville. They're happening at Harvard. They're happening at Stanford. They're happening at Columbia. They're happening at the elite universities. They are happening on the mall on Capitol Hill with members of Congress addressing them and joining in on the miasma of hate against Jews. The silver lining of this moment in history, and if there can be a silver lining to what happened in Israel, is that people show you their true faces sometimes. And we are seeing the true face of anti-Semitism on the left. And it has infected the left. And there's a difference. And I want—I really want to get your, because I'm thinking about writing a column on this. And I want to get your thoughts on it, Danny, because I think there's a fundamental difference between right-wing and left-wing anti-Semitism, which is a right-wing anti-Semitism is, is largely a fringe phenomenon. It's in the fever swamps. You, you have, you know, the Marjorie Taylor Greens and their Jewish space lasers and stupid stuff like that, which, by the way, she apologized for. And I hate, I can't stand her, but at least, she, you know, I haven't seen Ilhan Omar apologize for anything. Um, on the left, it's an elite phenomenon. It is in the halls of academia. It's in the halls of Congress. It's not a fringe thing. It is among the leadership and they're either rest of the left, whether it be the normal Democrats on Capitol Hill, the academics who, who don't hate Jews, don't have the courage to stomp it out and say, no, <laughs> you cannot be a part member of the Democratic Caucus of the House and also be a rabid anti-Semite. No, you cannot teach at Harvard. 
and 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 defend the the raping and murdering and beheading of babies and raping of women, innocent women, men and children, and say that this is justified. This is not acceptable. They won't stamp it out, and so they are complicit in it. This is a huge, huge problem on the left. It look, I, you know, Mark, I, I, as you said, I thought that nothing would shock me more than the events of October seventh. Uh, in Israel, uh, the, the the brutality of them. I, I thought nothing could shock me more than 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 the decapitation of a baby. But the response, the doubting, the Jew hatred, the Hitler glorification that we have seen all over the world, not in Iran, in Sydney, Australia, not in Iran. In Paris, not in Iran, not in Gaza, in London, and on the campus of Harvard University, Columbia University, New York University. I don't know how our soldiers felt when they liberated concentration camps. And I'm not talking about FDR who knew what was going on or Eisenhower who knew what was going on, but the rank and file guys who walked in and saw what happened, the piles of bodies, you know, the dead people, the emaciated people. Um, I don't know what they felt, but I imagine it's something akin to what I have felt over the last two weeks when I see the loathing for Jews just because they're Jews. Uh, you know, I, I, I said this in our interview, but, you know, if you said the murderer of Martin Luther King was a national hero, you would be drummed off the stage in America. If you said that killing George Floyd really was legitimate, because after all, look at George Floyd, you would be, you would be drummed out of your job. But apparently, all those people, all those social activists... All those goddamned movie stars who have an opinion on everything from abortion to uh, to Donald Trump to police brutality to Black Lives Matters, they believe explicitly, they believe that Jewish lives don't matter, that this is the one excusable crime left. You can murder Jews with impunity and no one needs to say anything because Jews. Well, on campuses, if you misgender somebody, you can get fired. I mean, no, truly, you know, and, 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 if, and these are the people who tell us that words are violence. The safety culture, right? I need, I need safe spaces. I need to, you know, I feel unsafe by what you're saying, you know. And then the same, the same idiots are chanting, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, which means, which is translation for anybody who doesn't know what that means. It's the equivalent of saying, kill the Jews. Because what it means is we want to kill all the Jews and drive them out of Israel. And we can't write off this. This isn't ignorance, Mark. That's the one thing I want to underscore. Because you know what? You can say to yourself, these college students are stupid. Okay, maybe they are. But the president of the University of Pennsylvania is not an idiot. The president of Harvard University... Oh, he's a coward. ...is not an idiot. Uh, UPenn is a woman. But she is a coward. She is a disgrace. A disgrace to academia. A disgrace to this country. I want to tell you an, uh, another story that, that happened last week that underscores just how disgusting and pervasive this is. 
Joe Biden has been very supportive of Israel. And when pressed at a certain moment for, you know, Israel needs to have a ceasefire, said, we can talk about a ceasefire when all those hostages are released. You know, I really, I appreciated that, that strength. On the other hand, his dingbat spokeswoman, Karine Jean-Pierre, caused a, a huge scandal because she was asked about anti-Semitism and she dismissed it on the stage and talked instead about Islamophobia. And it's like, woman, do you not understand that it is not Muslims who represent 1% of our population and are 10% of our hate crimes, as opposed to Jews who are 2% of our population and more than 50% of hate crimes. There is an anti-Semitism problem, and it apparently pervades the White House press room as well. I was so angered and outraged by this, and I'm only happy that so many other people were as well. So I want to give you some statistics to just show how pervasive this problem is. So Harvard-Harris poll just came out, and they asked the question to Americans, do you think the Hamas killing of 1,200 Israeli civilians on Israel can can be justified by the grievances of Palestinians, or is it not justified? Um, the good news overall, 76% of Americans said not justified, only 24% said justified, which 24 is too much. But then you go into the numbers by age. So, and keep in mind, this is rape, murder, mass, I mean, rape so bad that pelvises were broken. Women with their, their unborn children cut out of their bodies and stabbed to death. Babies beheaded. Children tied to their parents and and burned together. Okay, is it justified? For just sixty five percent and over nine percent, fifty five to sixty four eleven percent say it's justified. Forty five to fifty four twenty three percent, thirty five to forty four thirty nine percent. Then you get to the young people, twenty five to thirty four forty eight percent say it's justified. That that's almost half. And the 18 to 24-year-olds, the people on our college campuses right now, a 51% majority say it's justified. 51% of young Americans think that what was done on October 7th is justified. What the hell? What, I mean, what an indictment of our generation and how we raised our kids. That, that, there are, that there are people who have done such a bad job in raising children that they've allowed anti-Semitism to infect half of America, half of young people in this country who could think that it's justified to do what was done. I mean, are they living under a rock? Have they not seen the videos of the blood-spattered homes in the kibbutzes? Have, they, have, they, have none of these kids ever been to a music festival? Can they not empathize? I mean, these, these are kids who go out and party all night long, go to music festivals, and they saw guys in paragliders fly in on a music festival. These are their peers. These are kids like them who are absolutely massacred, and they say it's justified? What is wrong with young Americans? I mean, I, I fear for our country that these people, I mean, maybe they'll outgrow it. Maybe they'll, as they get older, they'll, they'll, they'll be more like the older cohort. But God help us, we, we are in a world of hurt in a few years when these people start running the country. We are in a world of hurt uh, because these inhumane creatures, these these execrable examples of of humanity, are 
being hired from elite schools at law firms, at companies, and they are going to bring their unique brand of hatred to the C-suites of America. I really, I, I have been super proud. There are a couple of organizations out there, um, Stop Anti-Semitism, Stand With Us, that have been ruthless in exactly the way I believe that the Jewish people need to be ruthless, which is not to hide your face, not to be afraid to go out, not to be afraid to stand up for your people, for Israel, for humanity, okay? And they have been single-handedly identifying people in these pictures, identifying these letter signers, name-calling them, and then letting their prospective employers or their current employers know they support Hitler, they support gassing the Jews, they support get decapitating babies. And for every one of those people that has been fired, for every Winston and Strawn, that courageous law firm that withdrew its employment uh, offer to that NYU law school animal, and I, I, there's no other word for her, who celebrated what Hamas did, right? There are hundreds more that are not being done, that are not taken care of. And I want to know who all these people are because I still... I absolutely believe that we need to challenge their employers. Are you going to are you going to subsidize this hater? Would you hire a racist? Exactly. Well, that's the thing. Then, then don't this, hire these people. And then there's some people are saying, "Well, this is just we we have to be consistent. We are against cancel culture, so therefore we can't be canceling people on this." No. Very very different. Very, very different. This is not canceling people because they uh, pro professed an unpopular but legitimate political argument. This is, if you wouldn't hire a neo-Nazi and you think that th that is a line that you as a business or a law firm or somebody else wouldn't cross, then you can't hire an anti-Semite either. You, you cannot hire somebody who s marches in favor of the massacre of Jews. I'm sorry. That's a line that we should all agree. It, it, should, it's not, it should not be crossed and there should be consequences of that. And by the way, free speech doesn't mean it. All it means is the, is the First Amendment is they can't put you in jail for your opinions. Right. But it doesn't mean there's no consequences for your opinions. You want to stand up and say, and say stuff like that. There, you should be shunned by society. And let's talk about that scumbag, Rashida Tlaib, Democratic Congresswoman, who has been single-handedly, along with her pal Ilhan Omar, supporting Hamas, supporting their propaganda. Ilhan, uh, Rashida Tlaib, after it was definitively proven that the Israelis didn't hit the Al-Akhla hospital in Al-Akhli, excuse me, hospital in Gaza, doubled down and insisted that it was the Israelis. I want to know. Why hasn't she been censured? We should kick those people off of their committees. And by the way, Ilhan Omar, I know we got to get to our guests because we're, we're, we're talking too much and she is absolutely brilliant. But just last thought, Ilhan Omar, who is a virulent anti-Semite, who you know said that support for Israel is all about the Benjamins, who supports the BDS anti-Semitic BDS movement, who like retweeted the the winner of the Holocaust denier contra uh, cartoon contest in Iran, uh, who who is just 
a, a rabid anti-Semite. You know what the Demo- what Nancy Pelosi did when she said all those things? She not only didn't punish her, she put her on the Foreign Affairs Committee, which is the committee setting U.S. policy towards Israel. So, you know, we need some accountability on Capitol Hill as well. And the Democrats, they're very vocal in telling us Republicans about how we need to police our movement and get rid of the get rid of the Trump, uh, you know, wing and all the rest of this stuff. Police your own movement. You know, your job is to police your movement and to and to kick these anti-Semites out of your out of your out of your caucus. And all those people should be kicked out of their committees. They should be kicked out of the Democratic caucus. And they're and and they're just afraid of their frigging shadows over there and not willing to do it. So don't tell me about extremism in the Republican Party when you're tolerating it and promoting it on Capitol Hill. Amen to that. That's all I got to say. Amen. We could we could go on for for ages, but as you say, our guest is just fantastic. Ruth Weiss uh, has been with us before. She is she's just a voice of clarity, and I'm so grateful for her. She's the Martin Peretz Professor of Yiddish Literature and Comparative Literature Emerita at of all places Harvard University, and we talk to her about that. She is a really, a truly preeminent scholar of Yiddish and American culture, literature, and she is the author uh, of a uh, her own memoir, Free as a Jew, and has been looking at this question of anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism, a uh, wonderful book uh, that came out some years ago, uh, If I Am Not for Myself, The Liberal Betrayal of the Jews, is just such an important book as well. Here's our interview. Well, Ruth, sure. welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much, Mark. It's so great to have you back. And of course, it's under unfortunate circumstances with what's happening in Israel and what's happening with the, the absolute slaughter of so many innocent civilians. And I just have to say, I have been shocked by the reaction on the left, on college campuses and Congress, other places, the anti-Semitism that is just raging. I was just visiting my son up at Amherst and we were driving through town and there are, you know, pro-Hamas protesters on the traffic circle in Amherst, Massachusetts. What is going on with anti-Semitism? First of all, what is anti-Semitism and what is happening with left-wing anti-Semitism? Well, I have to tell you that um, I find myself surprised by the degree of my shock at all of this. Um, I wrote a book about anti-Semitism, Jews and power. Uh, I've been thinking about this and trying to explain it and understand it uh, for the better part of my life. And I think I can speak cogently on the subject, but I agree with you. I find that what is happening is overwhelming. And um, of course, there's no comparison, but I am um, just as frightened about what is happening to America, as I am at this moment about what is happening in Israel. Uh, the situation in Israel is much direr because, of course, there the anti-Semitism comes in this form of a, of a, of a barbarism that uh, in some ways exceeds anything that we've seen in our lifetime. And my lifetime, by the way, is much longer than your guys. <laughs> but what's happening here is really frightful because to get to the point, you know, anti-Semitism really has nothing to do with the Jews. It points at the Jews. It blames the Jews. It uses the Jews as its vehicle. But anti-Semitism is about the anti-Semites. 
those who need this, those who have formed this ideology, who have who constitute this movement, who use this movement, and it is one of the most destructive movements that um, that we know of, because it destroys every society that actually uses it, and it destroyed Germany entirely, um, and it certainly has to destroy the societies because it is a very powerful political tool, and it's a political tool that serves its users very well in the short run, and we can talk about all its functions and why it becomes so popular and why it becomes so effective, but the more effective it becomes, the more debilitating it is, because of course what it is, it's a deflection of real problems in a society. And instead of solving those problems, instead of addressing those problems, those who embrace anti-Semitism are really using it to blame the wrong party and to uh, gin up violence against the wrong party. And the longer it is allowed to you know, uh, proceed and the more successful in its own sense it becomes, the more horrifically it destroys uh, its society. So really, uh, I would say that um, America is in very, very bad shape if this can take hold to the degree that it has in such a really short period of time. So Ruth, first of all, thank you. Thank you for, for being with us. I think I think Mark and I feel exactly the same way you do. You know anti-Semitism exists in society. You know, you know that there are people who hate Jews for being Jews. You know that there are nasties on both the left and the right. We saw them in Charlottesville. We've seen them everywhere. But it is the breadth of the anti-Semitism. It is the expression in Sydney, you know, in, in my home country of Australia, you know, when, when a pro-Palestine demonstration chants gas the Jews, that's about something else going on, as you say. What I want to ask you about, and there are so many things I want to ask you, but what I want to ask you about is this distinction that um, anti-Semites love to make between uh, anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism. I don't hate the Jews. I hate Israel. Uh, talk a little bit about that. Well, it's very interesting. You know, anti-Semitism is a movement, actually, that began in Germany in the 1870s. And the person who actually defined it, Wilhelm Marr, um, said that anti-Semitism was not, you see, Christianity. It was not Christian anti-Judaism. It did, it said the same thing. It distinguished itself from what went before. So in a way, it absorbed many of the demonic uh, qualities of it, what it came from. But anti-Semitism defined itself as a new political movement. And it is a movement. And here I would say that I try to make a distinction between prejudice, bias, hatred, and so on, on the one hand, and this movement, this political movement of anti-Semitism on the other. Because this isn't just your hatred. Some people have this prejudice. Why do they dislike people? 
you know, one of my teachers once said, the great uh, historian Salo Baron said that anti-Semitism is the dislike of the unlike. And it sounds so wonderful, but of course it's all wrong because the dislike of the unlike, it works for, uh, you know, African-Americans. It can work for Asians. It can, I mean, the dislike of the unlike is a universal quality. There are many, many people who dislike the unlike. Anti-Semitism, the organization of politics against the Jews, is something very distinctive because this is a political movement and it is to be taken very seriously because people are trying to get power through this and they are coming to power through this. And anti-Semitism has so many great political functions. That's one of the reasons it's become, in my mind, the most successful ideology of modern times, right? So if you think of, I know it sounds ridiculous because you're still thinking that it has to do with the Jews. How can this little people generate the most successful ideology of modern times? But if you see the way it was used and you see the way it's being used now and has been used by the Arab and Muslim world since 1945 and certainly since 1948, you see what it does. Look at it, for example, as a coalition builder. Where else do you have a movement that is such a coalition builder? So in Germany, what it did when Wilhelm Marr founded this as an anti-liberal movement, he could say, look, you're unemployed. You know why you're unemployed? It's because of the Jews. The church is failing. You know why the church is failing? It's because of the Jews. Your country is being taken over by the, the press is being taken over. Yes, the, the press is being taken over and, and the, and the music is being taken over and culture is being taken and the legal profession is being taken. They're everywhere. And what he said was that the Jews are conquering Germany from within. And he built around that a movement. Now, this began in the 1870s. Think of how long it took for the first politician to be elected on this platform. The first politician was elected on this platform in Vienna 20 years later. And then 20 years after that, you have Hitler coming to power on this movement. You, because, you see, this is the only ideology, anti-Semitism, that is entirely anti. It declares itself anti. So if you say communism, well, communism promises something. Fascism promises something. Democracy promises something. Everything promises. But anti? All you have to do is be against the Jews. And we can organize so many people. So if you think of intersectionality and how this preposterous thing happened, that the, quote, Palestinian movement became the, the, the flagship, the, the, the leading star of the whole intersectional movement. You see what I mean by coalition building? There is no other entity that could have united all these disparate uh, movements of grievance and blame. What they have in common is that they are all movements of grievance and blame, and they all coalesce. But let me ask you, okay, part of African-American movement that is Black Lives Matter or, you know, the violent or the, the uh, extreme part of that movement, the extreme part of the feminist movement, 
the extreme part of the LBGJ movement, the, 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 street, the extreme part of all the movements you see, what they're really against are parts of America. And what this movement is really about is really the left or whatever you're going to say, but the, what unites them is all parts of America. What unites them all? What could unite them all? And oddly enough, here you have this entity. They all unite against the negative image of Israel. Now, one of the questions people are always asking, what's the difference between anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism? Well, anti-Semitism was the organization of politics against the Jews in dispersion among all the countries. Anti-Zionism is the organization of politics against the Jews in their homeland, in their country. So it's exactly the same phenomenon. And the, the tragic thing for the Jews, and this is truly a tragedy, that Herzl and the whole Zionist movement conceived of Zionism partly, not entirely, but partly as a response to anti-Semitism. They said, you see why all these countries are against us. It's because we don't have our own homeland. It's because we're dispersed among all the nations. They all think that we're, you know, hanging out in their territories. They don't want us. There will never be a liberal Europe, he thought, unless we take the Jews out and he was worried about European liberalism because how did liberalism become illiberal? How did it become anti-Semitic? He thought one of the answers would be if you take Jews out of the equation, then you would never have this monstrous political movement again. Well, lo and behold, that wasn't true at all. What happened is it simply morphed into anti-Zionism. And by the way, Anti-Zionism is the only thing that unites the left and the right, which are absolutely polarized otherwise. But this was the great thing. Hitler could say the Jews are capitalists and the Jews are communists. He said both. And, 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 and laugh we may, but he united both the communists and the fascists on this one common thing that they had, you see. So, you know, I would, it's been a frustration to me why political science, for example, has never taken this seriously. It has never studied this most serious phenomenon in modern politics, this most corrupting element in modern politics. And, and let's just say how corrupting it is, you can see where, where have we seen barbarism, of the kind that has just been manifest in southern Israel. I mean, you had young men, and they're now showing this, posting on the cell phones that they took from their victims, a young man saying, look, Dad, in Arabic, look, Dad, I've got my hands bloody from having killed all these people. Are you proud of me? Aren't you proud of me? Now, you know, we think of ourselves as, you know, human beings. But, you know, the people on the campuses that are shouting from river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Well, what they're yelling is death to the Jews. Because 
from the river to the sea is the land of Israel. Small as it is, that's where it exists, between the river and the sea. So when they say, between the river and the sea, Palestine will be free, they are really saying, kill the Jews. And that's what they mean. That is what they mean. You see, they have constructed this entity that they hate or that they are against, which encompasses everything that they are not. And they want to destroy it. And these are Americans now, right? These are Americans. And these are people in our midst. And these are people at school where you taught, Harvard (laughs) University, um, and Columbia and Stanford and like all the elite institutions. You know, one of the thoughts that I had, and I'd love to, I'd love to get your take on it is, you know, it was only a few years ago that we had the, the march in Charlottesville where they, the alt-right were chanting, Jews will not replace us. And everybody came out and condemned it. Right. And it was the worst thing that had ever happened. And, and all the rest of it, those people were sort of fringe. They, they, they weren't members of Congress. They weren't Harvard students. They were alt-right fever swamps of the, of the right. Here we have dozens of Charlottesvilles happening every single day. And they're happening at Harvard and they're happening at Stanford and all these elite universities. And they've got members of Congress coming and speaking at these rallies and reveling in the anti-Semitism. Talk to us a little bit about the contradiction there and the differences in America today in right-wing and left-wing anti-Semitism. Because it seems like left-wing anti-Semitism, unlike right-wing anti-Semitism, is an elite phenomenon. It's happening amongst the most educated. It's happening in the most elite institutions and in the halls of Capitol Hill and the halls of, of, of academia. So how is this ideology taken root in, in the elite institutions? Well, I think that's a very powerful question. And I think that that's a question that these elite institutions are the ones that should be asking themselves. Unfortunately, they're not. So um, one of the answers to that is quite simple. I was at Harvard. And I watched this develop. And Harvard, and I'm just using Harvard here, as you say, as one of the schools, because it was happening everywhere. So this didn't happen by accident. Look, in 1975, um, at the United Nations, see, the Arab and Muslim leaders are basically responsible for this phase of anti-Zionism. They own it. Because in 1948... (laughs) Uh, when the State of Israel was created, as a member of the United Nations, the United Nations exists on the premise that it is for all nations, large and small. But from the moment that Israel was created, the Arab League was founded on one, again, one unifying principle alone. And what was that? What could unite 21 Arab countries? What could unite the Shiites and and the Sunnis and all their factions? Only one thing united them all those years, and that was organization against Israel, against the Jewish people in its country. And it was a fantastic organizing principle, and they kept going back to it, even though it split apart many times and so forth. It's still the only glue uh, you know, fading a little bit, but, but it's you can see how it's still called upon. Okay, so we have that. 
And then they lose wars. They try to destroy Israel by war. It doesn't work. They try to destroy Israel by war. It doesn't work. And they're supported by who else but the Soviet Union. Now, here's where you get your left wing. The the coalition in 1975 passed at the United Nations. It passed a resolution saying that Zionism is racism. Now, wrap your head around that. Zionism is racism. In other words, it was anti-Zionism that was racism. Anti-Zionism refused to allow the Jews to have their homeland. The Arabs and Muslims have 640 times more land than the Jews. There are a billion people as opposed to, you know, what, 13 million Jews at this point in all the world or 14 million? I mean, it's preposterous. The asymmetry between these two sides has, is, is monstrous, you see. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. It's never been a war. It's been this ideology of destruction. So in 1975, there's now a new coalition formed between the Arab bloc and the Soviet bloc. And they are the ones who passed this resolution. Zionism is racism. Well, you see, it stood on the books of the United Nations until 1991, but it was never really withdrawn. I mean, it was pumped into the world. And then from the 1970s on, you have young people from these countries, from these countries that actually believe that Zionism is racism. You have to understand that people who come from uh, countries like uh, even today, Egypt, those countries still believe those things. So they come to the United States, they come to these colleges, some of them teach in these colleges, teach in Middle Eastern institutes, and they promote these ideas, and they promote this coalition, a left-wing coalition of Zionism is racism, Now, isn't that a neat inversion? Everyone's talking about racism and the universities against racism and you have indoctrination that you should not be a racist. And here you have someone telling you, hey, Zionism is racism. Well, you know, it fits, you see. And so it becomes adopted by the universities and it's taught in the Middle East programs. It is actually taught It begins to be taught in social science programs. I hate to say it because uh, it is adopted by large parts of African-American studies. Uh, It certainly is adopted by large parts of the women's movement, which is also against patriarchy. Well, what represents patriarchy more than Jewish men, right, and so forth. So as staggering as this is, it really becomes like a true snowballing effect. And it grows from the time I came to Harvard in 1993 to the time I left in 2014. I mean, it was already, uh, and I went, by the way, personally, to every single dean that came in, every principal, new president that came. It's only Lawrence Summers that took it on at Harvard. And he himself made his first speech. He said, you know, this anti-Israel, this petition um, to boycott Israel is anti-Semitic 
in effect, if not in intent. How sweet that was. It was wonderful. Well, that was it. The minute he said that, he was a dead man. And the coalition to get rid of him formed right then and there. And within five years, they had all coalesced. The women's movement coalesced to get him out. African-American studies and everyone else who didn't like him on, on campus coalesced. But it was all that first speech that announced it. He wanted to protect the school from anti-Semitism. Well, they weren't having any of that. So it's filthy. You know, there's a Polish expression that I once pinned up on my wall. It says, it is a terrible thing to swim upstream in a filthy river, right? And this is what one feels one is doing with this subject. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. You are swimming upstream in a filthy river. I guess you've talked about why it is that there's been such uptake, uh, generational uptake among millennials, among Gen Z, among young people, particularly in elite institutions. Um, There's no question that they do get to, they get to live in their own Petri dish. That's one thing. And so, you know, you're not watching, you're not watching the news, you're not reading the same papers. And so you do get to create your own environment that reinforces your, your views. But it is as if there is no counter programming either. You know, when I was in school, and I've talked about this on the podcast before, my eighth grade teacher authored a curriculum that was very much in use in the 1980s called Facing History, which was an education about the Holocaust. You you may not have liked the Jews. You may have thought, maybe you thought Hitler did a good thing, but you knew what happened. That's all gone from the American education system. Is there some blame that we can put on our system for failing to teach history that enables this anti-Semitism, this violent, virulent, bloodthirsty, yucky river to flourish? Well, look, it, you, you've touched on a very strange subject. You see, uh, personally, um, I was always against Holocaust education for very good reason. Yes, of course, because the idea that showing the Jews as cadavers was going to be therapeutic in some way or was going to raise sympathy for them or was going to be like the resurrection. I think that people saw it in a Christian model that if you saw, you know, Jesus on the cross and you saw the Jewish people on the cross, well, this would be redemptive if you showed it. Well, God, I never thought there was a worse idea in, in and I fought it at every room, but of course, you know, there were other things pushing. I didn't know that. Yes. So, um, yes, because, of course, I knew that if you showed the Jews as being that vulnerable, what would happen is that people would say, let's get them. What fun. I mean, I saw immediately that what you would want is a copycat effect. If you can have so much fun, you see the Jews, they look so great. They are so satisfied with themselves. They could live in any circumstances. Look at Israel. What a wonderful, prosperous country. I can't bear it. Why should those people get away with it? I am going to smash them. And when you see on a campus, Jews, they look so innocent and they look, they have good families and they, they look so wealthy and they look so smart and everything. Let's get them. 
And what fun that is. You can just see what fun they're having out there. It's a, it's a love fest of hate. And, and that's, an, that's, a, that's something that one should not discount. The fun of sadism. The fun that they're able to have in the name of some political ideology. Like, let's cleanse the world of Jews or let's cleanse the world of Israel. This is not madness. There's a tremendous, uh, something that's very comprehensible about it when you see people whose own uh, polities are so dysfunctional. Now, let me just say one thing, though. The number of people whom this affects should not be exaggerated. This is a minority in America. The problem is that in order to destroy it, you would have to have a large majority getting rid of it. You would have to have a large majority like the Danes in Europe. We always say, why didn't everyone behave like the Danes when Hitler took Denmark? Well, you know, Hitler came into Denmark. He wanted to rid it of the Jews the same way he wanted to rid every other country. Well, other countries kicked in, or at least they let the thing happen. But Denmark didn't. They undertook to get make sure that the Jews got to safety. They got into it, and they stopped even Hitler with his armies. Now, in America, it wouldn't take all that much. All you would take is for the Democratic Party to absolutely say, we expel those members who say that that it's Israel's fault. If the Democratic Party were to undertake to say, I'm sorry, anyone who says that Israel is illegitimate Anyone who denies Israel's, you know, just obvious right to exist, pulls it into question, we don't want them in the party. That would be huge. Any university said, anyone who teaches that is not going to be in that university teaching any longer. That would do it. In other words, the minute good people began to act on what they know is bad, is evil, and put some muscle into it, this would begin to diminish rather than grow. But as long as good people don't do it, then of course it will flourish. Because as I say, it's so much fun. These kids have, you know, they come from dysfunctional countries. And you would think that the people who got into government and you think that the people who came to America would use the freedoms that we have here to teach their countries about how to improve their political lives and their, and their societies. You'd think that they would try to bring the model of something here back to their countries. But no, that's too difficult. What they'd rather do is to import the anti-Zionism of their countries and bring it into America and say, hey, this is us. We're proud anti-Zionists. We proudly want to destroy the state of Israel. That's our identity. And and so it's the universities that have allowed this to happen. And and increasingly, the boardrooms, (laughs) and um, increasingly, even the halls of government. And even though it's very, you know, as I say, it's still a I'm not sure it has reached the tipping point, but it is about to.
And what has happened in Israel is just the tipping point for sure. Because if people can look at those horrors, you see, the Nazis did not advertise their horrors when they committed them. It was only after the war that people oh, were shocked. We did not know. We did not know. Right? They did not, they did not advertise what they were doing, these experiments on bodies and so forth. But these kids, they're, <laughs> that's what they're selling. And they're selling it to American kids too. Look what we can do with those Jewish bodies. Look, we can take babies and take a little pile of Jewish babies and burn them. You know, we can just take these Jewish women and we can just not only rape them, but then we can cut them all up so that you can't even recognize whose body it is. That's what they're advertising. So it is monstrous. And I, I, and I really think that, that uh, perhaps of all professions, I think that at least in the university, it's the profession of political science and of social science that is most to be really questioned. What the hell have you been doing if you have not been investigating this? It's fascinating because we usually think of prejudice as a function of ignorance. That, that, you know, people who are uneducated and who are struggling in life and want to blame somebody else for their inability to, to succeed and thrive, they find a scapegoat. But here, it's the most educated people who are embracing this. It's, it's the Harvard professors and the faculty and the students at, at, at these universities. It's people who are elected to the United States Congress and who speak on the floor of the greatest deliberative body in the world who are embracing this. Um, how, explain how this can be an elite phenomenon. Well, Mark, <laughs> the, the greatest teacher I had and one of the greatest scholars I knew is a man by the name of Max Weinreich. He was a man who wrote uh, The History of the Yiddish Language, which is in four volumes. It's available in English translation. It's a marvelous, marvelous study. Well, my teacher, Max Weinreich, took um, time off during the war to write a very important book called Hitler's Professors. He had gotten his PhD in a German university, and he wrote this book about Hitler's professors to answer your question. You see, that's where fascism began. You think of it as some movement that began in the sewers of, uh, uh, you know, with some lame brain uh, you know, Hitler not being perhaps the smartest um, person in the world, though not certainly not the stupidest. But he shows that this was a movement fueled by professors, Nobel Prize winners. They loved it. They loved the inversion of it. They loved the idea of holding the Jews responsible for the aggression against them. It's such a neat inversion. It is. It is really... A mind game, in a way, you see. Uh, anti-Semitism is quite clever in its way. It inverts everything. It's a kind of an Orwellian game that one plays, <laughs> you see. And, and, and it's, and it's waged against a people that has no 
uh, incentive for counter-aggression. So, you see, you can, if you're against the Americans, by the way, I think that there's a lot of anti-Americanism in this. This is basically an anti-American movement. But I can't go out there and be anti-American because America's huge. And I'm going to get smashed by some people if I say that I'm anti-American. But anti-Jewish, the Jews themselves are not going to come at me because we know the nature of the Jews. They have no incentive for counter-aggression because Jews are a minority by choice. And their strategy has always been to integrate themselves into other people's territories. I mean, Israel is the tiniest country that always understood that it would live among the nations. Jews have no problem living among the nations. Coexistence is in the DNA of Jews, but it's not in the DNA of other peoples, you see. And so this metastasizes and it grows and, uh, and it becomes, the uglier it becomes, the more attractive it becomes in many ways. People have a lot of aggression and when you give them an outlet for it and you say, hey, this is an idea, they grab it. I say a lot of people grab it. A lot of people need it, apparently. Exit question for me. Um, because we've kept you longer, as we always do, uh, than promised. You talked about the Jews as victims. You talked about Jews being perceived as a group that will not fight back. And what I'm watching, certainly uh, now, is some stronger efforts to fight back than I've seen historically. Efforts to identify, you know, people who are out there in the streets and actually cause consequences for them, cause, you know, arrests. But this is probably only a tiny percentage of the masses that are out there, the hundreds of thousands in France, the thousands and thousands in England, the thousands and thousands we're seeing in the United States. How do you fix this? Well, I think that uh, to some extent, I think American Jews also have to undertake some responsibility for this because, you know, we have tried to say, you know, as we used to say as kids, sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me. So Jews have been, a lot of Jews have been very willing to uh, just say, well, this is going to go away, uh, you know, not stand up and be counted. But I think that now you see on campuses younger Jews are really beginning to mobilize. You're seeing what is most important, law firms saying, I want the names of those students. I am not going to hire them. You need every single CEO in this country doing exactly that, saying, I want the names of those people who want to destroy Israel and who are getting their jollies in these movements, I want the names of those people. I will never hire them. If I see that person on Twitter and I on X and I see them, I see them posting these things and I know this about them, forget about it. Um, you think the Me Too movement called people out? Well, wait till you see us calling people out. We are going to call people out. And, um, and I think that that's the muscle. That's what I mean by the muscle. You really have to have now at this point a very serious counter movement to say we are not going to tolerate this anymore. No one can call the legitimacy of Israel into question. 
and no one can use the phrase of free Palestine as a Orwellian formulation for kill the Jews of Israel. Uh, we won't allow it. And I think that that is our, uh, that's our challenge at this point, to see whether we can stop a movement that still can be stopped before it gets um, even more out of control. That's why it's so important also for Israel to just absolutely smash Hamas. Because it's, it sends a message not just to Hamas, not just to the region, but also to the world, that the Jews will retaliate. They're, no, they're actually not going to take this anymore. And they have a country and they have a military and they're not beholden to others to defend them. And, you know, I think it's a two-front struggle. It, uh, Israel, the IDF has to smash Hamas. And I think here in the United States, we have to smash these people who are their, who are their you know, fellow travelers um, and make them pay a price just like Hamas has to pay a price for what it did. If you're, if, if Hamas, you know, terrorizes, you know, women and children in the way they did, they have to pay a price. And if you're out there chanting in favor of them on a college campus, guess what? You're going to pay a price too. It's not going to be the same price. It's going to be a price with your career. It's going to be a price with your reputation. Right. Um, but it doesn't seem like that's where our university leaders are today. Um, and so my exit question for you is this, you know, we've got the, rise of the anti-racism movement, uh, th- th- this whole movement on college campuses, where they're, all the universities are falling over themselves to confront their past discrimination, right? We have to make amends to the slaves that built Harvard and built Yale and built Georgetown and all the rest of it. And they were, there's a whole history of anti-Semitism in these universities too. The whole, you know, holistic admissions process, it was designed to, because there were too many Jews getting in, we had to keep the Jews out. We have to suppress the Jews from getting into our universities and polluting our, our schools. Where is this sort of self-reflection amongst the, you know, the people of, of goodwill in these universities to recognize that they have a history of anti-Semitism in their universities and they have a higher responsibility than anybody else to confront this head on and take it on? Where is that self-awareness? <laughs> Well, one would do with a little bit less than that, even. You're asking for a lot. Um, I don't know whether mea culpas are going to do us much good at this point. I think what they have to do is to reverse course. But may I just say that the more troubling thing is that they use this, you see, too. Um, I think that university uh, professors may be very happy, you see, that this deflection of attention on the Jews and this concentration of violence against the Jews and of violent speech against the Jews and all the rest of it, well, listen, it's not coming at us. It's not coming at the, those who are running the universities the way it did in the 60s. So good. I'm really happy that this is really happening to the Jews. I don't mind it being directed against them because, you see, it, it sort of cushions me. And that's one of the functions of anti-Semitism, too. People let it flourish because it's not coming against them, and they don't see the connection between violence that is ginned up in the society and that violence being directed against them ultimately. You see, they don't see that, and so they let it flourish. And as as I say, in some cases, they may even be, I wouldn't say happy, but uh, they may even be relieved that it is not coming at them as it did uh, in the 60s, as you know overturning the universities. It's only overturning the Jews. Well, it's not overturning. Do you see the difference? But I have to say to you that I worry about America 
this is an illness in America. This is poisoning this country. It is a vehicle for poison. Anti-Semitism is the carrier of a very anti, a very negative, a very destructive ideology. And its real object is to gain power for itself against the polity within which it finds itself. And so um, I, I would take... I would take note. It's, can I just ask one quick follow-up question? Of Do you course. see a connection between this new movement of anti-racism and anti-Semitism? They seem to be a lie. And you started out by talking about how the anti is so much easier than the, than the pro. They both seem to hate America. They so seem to be wanting to bring down success and, and prosperity and all the rest of it. Uh, is there a connection between this new anti-racism as opposed to the civil rights movement? Which well, was, was, was something different than this. Very different. Uh, the, very different. Well, can I tell you that um, uh, in the summer of 1992, uh, I know it very specifically because that was the summer that I decided to come to Harvard. And, um, and I started in the winter of 93. Well, in the summer before I came, Skip Gates, you know, uh, Henry Louis Gates, who is now uh, uh, very famous on on uh, PBS television, he was then in the African American Studies at Harvard, and he published a an op ed in the New York Times that I commend to you. Really, it is the best analysis of black anti semitism that you could read anywhere, and he wrote it. And the New York Times gave him a full page a full page of the whole op-ed page devoted to his analysis. You read that analysis and you see how keenly he understood the function of anti-Semitism in the black movement at that time, at that moment when it was organizing. And he warned against it because he knew that it was a cheap out, that that wasn't what was going to solve the problem of African-American society. He knew that one would have to begin with a self-analysis, with a, with a reform from the inside. He knew how difficult that would be, and he knew what a shortcut it was to try to blame others and then to try to externalize the blame in, rather than really solving the critical problems which could only be done through the much more difficult and real process of, of, of self-liberation, uh, uh, really, of self-reform. So there you had it, 1992. Nobody can do it better than he did it in that article, let me just say. So that's a long time ago. The analysis was already there. It was there in the university. But I might say that um, within two years, he, he never acted on it. When anti-Semitism began to really mas- manifest itself, including in parts of his department, quiet. Never heard from him on the subject again. That's one of the reasons why I so admired William F. Buckley for calling out Pat Buchanan right around the same period, a little bit later on, but because it took that courage to to do that, not to just identify, but to call it out. So Ruth, you've been wonderful and super generous with your time. I really, we both thank you for your clarity and your scholarship and your, your uh, moral exactitude. I'm I'm very grateful to you guys. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ruth. 
Danny, what did you think? There were two things that, there were more than two things, but there were two things that really stay with me. One is this argument that anti-Semites like to make, that they're not anti-Semites, they're just anti-Zionists. And that's just bullshit. Sorry, guys. You know, when, when people talk about Jewish genocide of the Palestinians, I look at the increase in population in Gaza and the West Bank and ask myself, how well this genocide is going, right? You know, this is the largest, the highest growth rate in the world, 4% of individual, of uh, a birth rate in Gaza. Um, Jews are not clearly, in addition to being not good at so many other things, Jews are not very good at genocide either. This small country of almost 10 million people, almost 2 million uh, Israeli Arabs included in that, this is the problem in the Middle East of hundreds of millions of people. This, these are the genocide people, you know, not the Iranians, not the Syrians who killed half a million of their own people. No, no, it's just the Jews. It's, it's the, the Jews. It's the Jews. So that's number one. And the other thing. Well, first of all, J- Danny, yeah. the, the Jews secretly run the the entire global economy. And yet they can't manage to wipe out the Palestinians. I mean, seriously, what's happening at these meetings? Uh, you know, the, the, you know, it's like <laughs> these meetings of the protocol to the elders of Zion. The elders of Zion are the most overrated, uh, you know, uh, people of, uh, ever. Uh, <laughs> yeah, because they're very bad. They're, get, they're very bad at genocide. Very bad. They are very bad at genocide. They're very bad at wiping out the Palestinian population, which has increased like topsy over the years. They're very bad at all those things. But hey, who cares? By the way, can I can I just say one thing about the Palestinian population? The other day, I watched the movie Golda. Which is yeah. a spectacular movie. I, I, I encourage everybody to watch it. I good? loved it. Um, but I was watching some interviews with Golda Meir, and one of the things she said is, "I'm a Palestinian." Like that we are. It used to be everybody who lived there were, were Palestinians. It's like it wasn't. It wasn't Arabs who were just Palestinians. The Jews were Palestinians. It was the. It was the protectorate of Palestine. And, you know, so this idea that somehow that, they, you know, the, Haviv was on the other day with us on the podcast, and he pointed out that 70% of the population of Israel are native. It's only 30% that are European. So I, I don't think that the Jews of Israel should cede the term Palestinian to, the, to Hamas and, his, and the rest of the, the crap. But that's an aside. I'm sorry. No, listen, one of the things that I've been talking to my class about is, you know, this this expression militants versus terrorists. You know, I just saw the Associated Press doesn't allow its reporters to call Hamas terrorists, terrorists. You know, language matters. And actually, that's right. There were Jews in Palestine long before anybody thought of this as being quote-unquote Palestinian territory in the current meaning of the word. But that is a bigger discussion. The other thing, though, that Ruth said that really... You know, I just found so troubling, and we, you and I talked about this a little in the intro about about the population. There, the prevalence of anti-Semitism suggests something so broken in our society, suggests such a, a an a underlying sickness. I don't know how we contend with it. it. She says it's not about education. She says it's just about hate. You know, how do you how do you beat it? How do you beat that? You you beat it 
by being as ruthless against it as as Israel has to be in in beating back the actual terrorists, which is you just don't tolerate it. Uh, and you stand up and you impose consequences on the people who who profess it, and you don't hide. Yeah, I'll, I will tell you that after uh, you know, I'm I'm going up to college campuses all across the country because my kids play hockey, and so I'm going to be I'm going to be on probably you know 20 college campuses this fall. I just bought a bunch of Israeli flag pins, and I'm going to wear one to every friggin' game. And everybody, every college campus I'm on, I'm going to be wearing the play. You know, and I'm a Roman Catholic. <laughs> Not a Jew, uh, you know, not an Israeli, but, you know, solidarity. I added a, uh, an Israeli flag to my uh, Twitter uh, profile. When you see these, these you know, pro-genocide people waving their Palestinian flags, put an Israeli flag on your, uh, on your lapel, you know, and call them out. Don't just pass by and ignore them. Tell them, say something, you know, call them out for what they are. And if, you, if these people come to you for a job, just say no. And, 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 you know, we, we, there has to be a cost. There has to be a cost. If you wouldn't hire a Nazi, you shouldn't hire somebody who is for the wiping you out. You shouldn't hire Jews. a Nazi because that's you what shouldn't you hire a Nazi. Are. Don't yeah. hire a Nazi. There, there you go. go. That's, that's, a good, way, that's a good place to start. Let's not by, hire a Nazi. By the way, Mark, yeah. uh, and we need to wrap this up, but shouldn't hire a Nazi. The New York Times fired a, report, a reporter in 2012 for tweeting that Hitler is great. Right uh, about the Jews, they just rehired him. They just rehired him, My and God. said we've talked to we've talked to him, and uh, and and he knows he knows that was wrong. That, that's it. And the New York Times, O M G. This is you know don't hire Nazis. Don't want to hire a racist. Don't hire a Nazi. There you go. That's our advice for the week, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> and Mark seems thank so self-evident, and yet it has to be said. Shockingly <laughs> enough. Thank you for thank you for wearing those lapel pins. Thank you for showing where you stand in public and having that courage. And everybody, let us know if you need are interested in resources about this issue. If you want to support uh, the fight, if you want to support the fight against anti-Semitism, we have a list of organizations up on our Substack that is really uh, that's not by no means exhaustive, but is a good place to start. Thanks again. Take care. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.